Hello, thank you for tuning in to American Student Radio, airing live on WIUX LP Bloomington, your home for pure student radio in all its scrappy and beautiful forms. From Bloom... <laughs> From... Uh, again, live... Li- what is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens, conspiracy, journalism, and lesbians. I'm Emily Miles, and I'm going to be your host for a minute. I want to start off with a question. What are you tasting right now? Take a moment to identify the flavors. Mine are espresso, sugar, and cardamom. Now, as you listen to this episode all about taste, ask yourself a few more questions. Who is responsible for the flavors in your mouth? What sorts of memories do those flavors conjure? And what do they say about you? Our first piece today serves as a sort of follow-up. Back in spring 2017, we did a show about food. And for that show, Callan Norman and I talked with the founders of FED, or Food Education at IU. Today, Calla is the president of that student organization, and she offers insight into how far the group has come. This whole story is very interesting because it's kind of, it's very indicative of FED's current leadership and our kind of our need to improvise a lot. Uh, my name is Callan Norman, and I am the president of FED. We started off with two founders, and they pretty much organized everything themselves. And then the year after that, it was just me, and there was another co-president, but he got too busy with some other engagements, so it pretty much ended up just being me. But now, this year, we've got a FED board. So we have one Fed board member, she's a sophomore uh, named Kaylee, and she wanted to do an event in a pumpkin patch. And she contacted the Fowler Pumpkin Patch, and we formulated together, this all, all of us, we formulated this idea that we would get a group together and drive to a pumpkin patch, pick some pumpkins, bring them back, and cook with them. Um, and then we found out we did not have enough cars to drive people. So we nixed that idea of going to the pumpkin patch and just kept the cooking portion. And that actually ended up being a good idea because it rained really badly that day. So it wouldn't have been fun to, you know, wade in the mud in a pumpkin patch anyway. I know it seems like there's a ridiculous amount of food, and that's because there is. <laughs> it's, we were anticipating a lot more people, but this is fine. This is, you know, excuse more for us. Try and measure it, maybe, though. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, Maybe we stop here then. Yeah, we could. The IU Food Project house, it's a duplex, so it's literally a house that you're going into. And there's this main kind of dining area where there's a huge conference table. And then you go into the back and there's a kitchen. And for the past two years working with Fed, uh, it's just been one very small kitchen, honestly, about the size of this podcast bay. It's not it's not big at all. But now this year we have two kitchens. So when we're cooking, uh, usually we do a lot of the chopping in that main dining room. Those who are a little more experienced help the people who don't necessarily know how to chop an onion. 
which is I kind of think is one of the best things about Fed is that we're all kind of coming from different levels of experience. Then as we cook, people who, you know, really want to get in there and cook will will do that. But usually people will there'll be like several people just kind of hovering around the oven, which is always fun or the, the stove. If you can find a different bowl, you can sure as heck have it. Yeah, I mean, that that reminds me of, like, being little at my aunt or grandma's house and, like, hovering around the stove constantly, just, like, trying to learn. Yeah, that's exactly it, because then you also have uh, instances, um, for example, at the Indian cooking seminar. I don't cook with rice ever. So I'm there and everybody's, like, kind of looking towards me for, like, what should we be doing? And I'm like, eh. It ends up being very mushy, which I wasn't sure if that was the right thing, but I, we were right. We were on the same track. But as we were washing the dishes later, there's like this nice just black crust of of rice on the bottom. So it's kind of funny how, you know, the different layers of experience like there's, oh, this looks great. And then you look at it again and you're like, oh, well, that could have been better. But we, it was a learning experience. I think like the the main thing about Fed is how it's gone through a lot of different identities. I think in the past uh, two years, I feel like the story of Fed is a story of a lot of different student organizations where there's always like a lot of enthusiasm in the beginning, and then as we start to develop, and as people leave, um, you know, and people come in, it's like an evolving process. It's been just an interesting story how a lot of different student organizations have, like, very similar issues. I've heard from other organizations, you know, the same struggles. So it's, you know, it's kind of gratifying to know that we're not alone in the struggle. Now we're kind of, I think, forming more of an identity as the club where people come and cook together. And I really think that that has also helped us to go towards that initial goal of forming a community around food because what better way to form a community than by you know actually getting your hands dirty with other people and well you don't want to get your hands dirty if you're cooking that's kind of bad (laughs) but you know what I mean um by you know actually chopping alongside people because I think doing that and having that kind of hands-on experience is a great way of bonding with others. The music in that piece, and actually in a lot of American student radio, comes from Blue Dot Sessions and is used under a Creative Commons license. Special thanks to Kala Norman for providing the lovely cooking sounds. Coming up next, Rick Brewer invited fellow producer James Keyes into the studio to talk about sommeliers. But not just any old wine tasters. We're talking about master sommeliers and the story behind a scandal that has rocked the wine community. Let's just dive right in to our topic of the day. So the topic is sommeliers, master sommeliers, wine tasting. So, And for those of you who don't know, um, a sommelier is a quote-unquote wine expert. Uh, they're the kind of person that you might see in a fancy restaurant, five-star restaurant, white tablecloth, who can pair your food just right with a nice, fine bottle of wine. Uh, they might know the history of the wine. They are the go-to people for 
wine. They know everything about wine. And if you're a sommelier listening to this, you're probably thinking I'm dumbing it down. And I probably and I know I am, but that is the crux of what they do, right? Um. So James, tell me a little bit about what you think of when you think of a sommelier. Yeah. So I worked at a pretty high end Italian restaurant over the summer. It was a Neapolitan pizzeria. Um, and the owner, who's my cousin, spoiler alert, uh, he is a sommelier in his own right. He goes to Italy, basically, and goes and meets with vineyard owners and gets these really cool relationships with them. So that's kind of where I'm coming from is I have family who are so passionate about wine um, that they know like the square mile of soil that a certain wine grape has come from. So when I think of sommeliers, I think of just like a, an appreciation of wine, the grapes, where it comes from, how it's made, the people behind it. So I'm kind of, I, I don't think sommeliers are super pretentious, but that's because I'm around them and I'm full of myself. Um, and so I don't, I see how a lot of people think they're pretentious. But yeah, I think that it's like an appreciation. It's funny that you say pretentious because before I did any of this research in the story I'm going to tell you today, my perception of Somali was, have you ever seen the show Frasier from like the late yeah. 90s? Yeah, like how like they have the yeah. cork master. Hail cork master, the master of the cork. He knows which wine goes with fish or pork. Cork master, the master of the cork. That whole like perception, yeah. that was my they're too good for the alcohol and the wine. So let's just dive into the, the story now. Well, first of all, do you know that you can reach master sommelier status? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Do you know anything about the process? Yeah. So my cousin took a lot of classes. He didn't ever get to be like a master or anything, but I know it's really rigorous and you have to go and taste these like heritage, heritage, heritage from like hundreds of years ago, varietals of grapes and mm -hmm. all of this crazy stuff. I don't know a ton, but I know it's crazy. So it actually is held in this country in St. Louis, Missouri. St. Louis? St. Louis. So approximately 200 sommeliers from around the world submit themselves to this grueling three-part test um, to become a master sommelier. Um, and what that test includes is that uh, you must pass an oral test of wine theory, which examines like your encyclopedic knowledge, you know, uh, where the wine comes from, what style the wine is uh, grown in, uh, the grapes, um, really the nitty gritty uh, sort of book part of wine. And then it's followed by like the service portion. And then you're judged on courtesy, how you, your salesmanship, how you treat customers, essentially. But the, the worst part about this exam is that you do a blind tasting. And this is where most people get tripped up. Um, it's super intense. You have to identify three red and three white wines based on flavor and appearance alone. It's also important to know that the vast majority of wine pros who take this um, fail. Like, it's extremely hard to pass. Um, and I'm pretty sure, according to my research, um, in this test, 45-year history, a mere 250 people worldwide have only passed. That sounds about right. And have reached master <laughs> sommelier status. Yeah. And just granted that, like, hundreds of people have tried to, to reach the status. So Spent it, their whole life taking classes, tasting wines, right. you know, yeah. traveling and the world. <laughs> yeah, like, it, it's actually insane because these people are spending 20 to 30 hours of studying per week. They get coaching from sports psychologists. They've accumulated mountains of credit card debt. Um, the master 
is top bragging rights. Your salary increases by 50%. Um, and again, it's this idea of you have been knighted as the top of your field. So what was really cool about this year is that unlike any other year, um, at the end when they were announcing who had passed, 24 people had passed. Wow. Again, tell yourself, 24 people passed, and then all time it had been about 250. I think they figured out how to cheat the system. (laughs) I think they made a study guide. Well, it's interesting that you say that, James, because soon after everyone had been given their Master Somalia status, the 24 people, it had been leaked that one of the cork masters had released the tasting information. I don't trust anyone who's named Corkmaster, first of all. <laughs> Second of all, how long has this been going on, though? Because I feel like if this is the first year that people are cheating the system, I'm very surprised. Yeah. so That's wild. So 24 people had passed, but again, one of the quote-unquote Corkmasters or head of the associations led um, leaked information about the answers to the test tasting and then it was a unanimous vote to strip 23 of the 24 new masters of their master title and this has been a huge uproar in 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 this community think about it you have won the oscar of your profession it's like la la land like you won and then it's it's done yeah except that's the only thing you can win that's it yeah (laughs) there's that's absolutely it (laughs) there's only like one prize and and that was it um and to quote um, uh, Bianca Bosker from The New Yorker, she said, Somaliers have entered a period of mourning for their defrocked colleagues. So now that you know this story, what, yeah. what, do you, what, what do you think? I want to know some of your thoughts about it. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky because I'm typically around people who don't seek out a title because their love and appreciation of wine is enough. Um, and I think that they're focused more on the, hey, my friend Giovanni has this vineyard in Sardinia and I'm friends with him and I sell his wine and I'm one of the only places in the U.S. that sells his wine. I think that I'm around people like that. And so it's kind of hilarious to see people get so up in arms about something that's so arbitrary. But then again, you know, in terms of salary, you make a lot of money as a master sommelier. The amount that are employed in the U.S. is so, so small. I see how people can have a lot invested in it, but I don't get it. I don't think that you should put that much stake in a competition, more or less, that is judged based on how much time and money and status you have. I think it's kind of funny. I hate to say it. It's it kind is. of funny to me because, again, I go back to the Fraser. It was jammy, plummy, dense, and chewy. <laughs> there is no doubt in my mind that it was a Napa Valley Merlot. Huh? And you, Fraser? A nice big wine with excellent heft. It's Napa, all right, but as I always say, why go Merlot when you can call a cab? but it it is kind of amusing to me because it's just like and also the way that these new yorker articles are written which is where i got the source of information the way i read it it's almost like sarcastically written oh yeah 
Yeah, and I people in the industry too. I mean, first thing that comes to my mind, Mario Batali, his kind of um, the way he likes people to taste wine is to just taste what they taste, and taste is often based off of how you perceive things and what experiences you have, and so. Mario Batali always says, you know, if you taste zucchini in a wine, then you taste zucchini in a wine. And if you like it, then you like zucchini wine. Like, no one should care what you taste or whether or not that's valid. And I feel like sommeliership kind of perverts that in a way and gets people further away from enjoying wine for what it is. Because if you think Franzi is good, Franzi is good. No one's going to, I mean, you'll get judged, but... Who cares? You, if you like it, you like it. I mean, slap the bag. Exactly. Slap that bag. Honestly, like, you know, I don't think I think when you get too deep into wine as a competition is when you start to get far removed from the history of it, the culture behind it, what it's created, what it's destroyed. You know, And I think it's really interesting to see the people behind it and to put those people so far aside and to just have the wine and the dollar value speak for itself I don't like that so that's why I can kind of laugh at it too thanks for joining me in the wine corner of this edition of American Student Radio oh I love that thanks for having me Rick That was Rick Brewer, along with James Keyes. And it's funny because that piece also echoes a story from our California episode in fall 2017, a whole year ago, uh, when ASR took a trip to Oliver Winery. If you're interested in hearing that or any of our other past episodes, you can find them on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your audio fix. And if, by rooting around in our stuff, you find that you want to make some sound with us, just let us know. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we are always accepting pitches. Now, to end our show, we're going to share with you another cool podcast. It's called Filter Stories. Each episode, host James Harper brings you a story about the life that happens around coffee. The little taste of this show we're giving you now comes from the episode Firefly. Murray is one of Ecuador's most famous coffee farmers. But there's a problem. He's only earning $2 profit from 250 espressos. So how does he survive? While he struggles, his farm is splashed across Instagram and roasters say they have his interests at heart. This is the real story behind the glossy Instagram posts. The reality might change how you look at your next cup of coffee. Back in October 2017, a US specialty coffee roaster posted a photo on Instagram. And the photograph is of Murray Cooper, a six-foot middle-aged white guy. He's wearing a dirty t-shirt, and he's standing in between one, two, three, four, five, six, six buckets of coffee cherries. This is what it read. Hanging with Mr. Cooper. Our newest coffee offering is a single producer lot grown by Murray Cooper in the Nenegao region of Ecuador. This is our first year purchasing from Murray, who grew up in Kenya and moved to Ecuador to become a forest ranger and photographer. But in that text is a glaring mistake. Murray is not Kenyan. He is a white South African. And a number of roasters were selling his coffee saying he was from Kenya.
he tried to clear up the confusion by sending a bunch of emails. Just saying, listen, I'm, you know, I'm kind of proud of my South African heritage and I'm a bit of an international figure because of my photography. And I know I'm posting on Facebook where I've got a lot of followers and I'd like them to know that I am actually South African, not Kenyan, but it wasn't changed in a whole year. And I was constantly being asked about the whole Kenyan story. So I think a lot of people thought I was bullshitting. <laughs> you know, trying to be cool in Kenyan, coffee kind of guy. Yeah, well, maybe it's not cool to be South African. That's the other one. Eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the white apartheid bastard. <laughs> maybe in the same month as the Instagram post, you popped into a cafe and drank a latte made using Murray's Firefly coffee. Now, I'm guessing you knew nothing about Murray. And even if you had heard his name, you were probably relying on your roaster to give you the facts. These roasters got a pretty basic fact wrong about Murray. Now, that same roaster who published the Instagram post also published a transparency report in the same year. The subtext was, don't worry, we've got our coffee farmer's interests at heart. But let's look again at that photo. Those six buckets will make about 250 espressos. Mari's total profit from those six buckets would be $2. Not $2 per bucket. $2 for all six. How does one of the most famous coffee farmers in all of Ecuador earn just $2 profit from 250 espressos? What's going on here behind the scenes? Well, for once... Let's hear the real story behind the glossy Instagram photos. Because the reality might change how you look at your next cup of coffee. I'm James Harper, and this is Filter Stories. The untold stories hidden in your cup of coffee. To fully appreciate what was happening behind the scenes in that Instagram photo, we need to start the story right at the time Murray leaves South Africa. He's in his mid-twenties, behind a desk, super corporate marketing gig. He's been doing it for five years, and he realizes it's not for him. So marketing really is just trying to bluff you to buy stuff you don't need, you know? Um, and just took six months off working, but the six months turned into a year and faded away. Okay. Here's a question for you. What would happen if you quit your job right now and you went traveling the world with no plans to ever go back? I'll try and sum up 11 years of Murray's life in two minutes. Murray heads to California and he falls in with a crowd of conservation activists. Think Greenpeace, tree huggers, you get the idea. And he asks them, what can I do to help the global conservation movement? And these guys said Ecuador, you know. I came down to Ecuador and, and it kind of all happened immediately. It was all sort of destiny. Murray lands in Ecuador and then he meets somebody who knows somebody who needs help to protect a rainforest. And before long, Murray is there full time managing a science base in the middle of the Los Cedros rainforest. It's where I ended up staying and living for 11 years. Murray's gone from a desk job to living in a jungle with no electricity for 11 years. So, uh, you know, we had no power, no, no music, no, no lights, just candles. And 
for 11 years. <laughs> it was rough. Murray helps the Los Cedros rainforest grow from 80 hectares to over 6,000, and it becomes a legally protected forest. At one point while living in the jungle, Murray starts to take photographs. I'm, I started you know, taking a few pictures, and that was for fundraising. I could see that I had a bit of an eye, and people said, hey, you take good pictures, whatever, you know, but that's being polite. Murray goes on to become one of the most respected bird photographers in all of South America. His photos have appeared in places like National Geographic. And at one point, he also finds love. He meets a local Ecuadorian called Patricia, and she comes to live with him in his rainforest shack. How did you end up going from Quito to the middle of a jungle? <laughs> because I love it. <laughs> I always loved the jungle, and uh, that was my dream coming true. <laughs> For five years, Patricia and Murray lived together in the jungle. What, what compelled you to stay for over 10 years? No, I mean, I think I probably would still be living there if I hadn't you know, started a family. And then my wife, she wasn't keen on living like the whole eight hours by mule with kids, you know. This is when the story shifts from a never-ending career break to coffee. So, welcome, guys. I'm with Murray in his 10-year-old Nissan Patrol, and we're driving into the farm. The house, right? There was no God. This is all mine. I'm here to learn why he started the farm and how we ended up earning just $2 profit for six buckets of coffee cherries. So I step out of the car and just, wow! So it's a beautiful spot. Bought the farm for its beauty because it's on a, like a high ridge. So you've got like 300 degree view of mountains and lots of forest. When we see two volcanoes. Murray calls this farm Firefly because at night, a thousand little lights flicker in the dark. Murray and Patricia bought this 30 hectare piece of land with the leftovers of Murray's savings from South Africa and a generous donation. The year is now 2010, and Murray is taking a look into the future. You know, I had a piece of land, I had a farm, I wasn't really using it. Um, then I started looking at what, what, what would grow here, and coffee was the one, you know, it's the perfect climate for coffee. But what about photography? Why doesn't he just stick to taking photographs of birds? I'd say I preferred coffee farming to photography. It was a most noble retirement for myself. That's sort of how I saw it as my retirement plan. I don't have medical and retirement or any insurance. I've always worked for myself. And so I have no nest egg for like the, the later years. So this was kind of my nest egg, something that would keep me, keep me happy and busy and, and doing something I love, you know, without having to get in a car and drive around and airplanes, this kind of stuff that's associated to photography. But relying on the farm for his retirement is a big risk. Back in 2010, Ecuador hardly grew specialty coffee. And there were so few people Mario could turn to for advice. Well, my initial thing was I'd come from conservation, so it was all organic. And right at the start, he makes a big mistake. What's the word? I had technical advice from a local guy who was unfortunately the most like really radically organic coffee farming guy in the whole of Ecuador. I didn't know that at the time. So he had me with so much shade that I could never produce coffee under that stuff. When did you get your first harvest? Three years, but that was the first sign of organic. Because at three years, you should be harvesting something, you know? Right. I mean, they say two pounds a plant, 
and we were just getting grams, you know. So there was just not much coffee on the trees. So it cost us probably quite a bit of money there. Murray has now wasted a good chunk of his savings. And it's around this time that Murray learned something very important. It's all to do with the latasa, the cup, you know. It's all to do with points and where you are on your points. Specialty coffee is all about points. The better your coffee tastes, the more points it's going to get, and that means you can earn more money. And I, I saw straight away that really the, the way to go was try and produce specialty coffee, even though it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost me a little more time, but I, I can always sell my coffee and hopefully for a premium price. And so for the next harvest in 2016, Mari focuses on increasing his points. What will the coffee world say when they finally get to taste Mari's improved firefly beans? It's now lunchtime on the farm. Murray grates an onion, the onion first had lemon on it. mixes it together with freshly squeezed orange and lemon juice, and then he pours it over tender raw fish and squeaky popcorn. So this is a Ecuadorian ceviche from Manabi. The year is now 2016. Murray's hoping that his coffee tastes great so he can get paid amazing prices. And there's really good news. The best roasters from across the world start buying Murray's Firefly coffee. They come all the way to Ecuador to see his farm. And Murray cooks delicious meals for them, just like he's doing for us right now. It's good. It's good. Nobody's going to be bitching. <laughs> it's taken us a while to find speciality coffee from Ecuador. Murray's reading from the website of a large specialty Australian roaster, where they chose his coffee as their Coffee of the month in December 2016. What does it make you think? Reading that. Hey, it makes me feel like we had a decent coffee, you know? It wasn't Nescafe, that's <laughs> for sure. One of the reasons Murray's coffee tastes so great is because he's managing the farm incredibly well. I speak with Juan Carlos Vega, a senior consultant hired by the Ecuadorian government to assist farmers like Murray with technical issues. I ask him, how Mari's farm compares to others he has seen in the region. I would say at least in the top five. He put so much emotion and so much heart into the work. And at the end, he got one of the best coffees in the region. I mean, the results were amazing. Mari has cracked it. From the outside, it looks like he's figured out how to run a successful specialty coffee farm. Except, well, he hasn't. The tech people give you the maths. So you've got this a very clear thing of where you're going to go with this. And then at the end of harvest, it just doesn't, the sums just don't add up. You know, the maths is wrong. And, and the, the, my main problem was price was selling. That's where the problems started to happen with this, you know, the sales. Murray needs to sell his coffee for a high price and get paid fast. But the specialty coffee middlemen that Murray was selling to couldn't pay him high and fast. They can pay fast or they can pay high, but not both. And that's because they are facing problems of their own. Very few people want to buy Ecuadorian coffee. Because of costs, because uh, the production costs are really high, so Ecuadorian coffee is really expensive. This is Gil, a founder of one of the smaller companies buying green coffee in Ecuador. 
And in comparison with Colombian coffee, with Peruvian coffee, with Central American coffee, for the same quality, our coffee is more expensive. So obviously buyers, they will say no. Yeah, it's, that's the biggest problem in the whole deal was is really that Ecuador is expensive to produce. Mari is spending $2.20 to produce one pound of coffee. Colombia is like one forty. Um, Africa is like 60 cents a, a pound. And Nicaragua is like one dollar. I can't remember exactly the details, but it's like we are the most expensive after Hawaii or something, you know. And one of the biggest reasons Ecuadorian coffee is so expensive is because hiring people is not cheap anymore. That was also the stage where labor became more, more expensive and the government just got really strict about that. So you had to have your workers with social security, all that stuff. And, and there was huge fines if you didn't. Mari doesn't want to break the law. But more importantly, he wants to do better than the minimum wage. I paid above the standard wage. Always, like $100 more. I was happy to have, you know, a little less profit for myself so that some people could have a lot better life. So Murray is now paying about $20 a day to each of his workers. Now that is double what that same worker could earn in neighboring Colombia. What is the impact of paying that little bit extra? And there was a family that started working with me. They, their kids weren't even in school. They, now the whole family has a motorbike. Um, they've fixed their farm up and they fixed their house up and I gave them a piece of land and they really set up. So now I changed one small family's life, you know, in a big way. But Mari is not getting paid any extra for the fact he's changing people's lives. And his costs are really high, especially during harvest time. Um, so you have to have, you know, three, four, five thousand dollars a week to be able to pay your harvesters. So that's a big problem. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, how do you how do you how do you keep this going in cash flow wise? Hey, scraping. <laughs> well, I didn't do is go out in the street and try and sell my horse. That's what I stopped. <laughs> but I was just doing whatever. Just you know, it was hard. Murray gets so desperate he begins to sell whatever he can. The one time I didn't have money for fertilizer, and we just sold the car. <laughs> and it was a damn nice Volvo that I had. Kind of oldish, but it was really good shape, and I didn't get any money for it because it was a stupid thing to sell. You know, and I sold it for shite <laughs> because I needed the money quick. So the first guy, I was just like, dude, whatever you want to give me. You know? Murray is realizing a painful reality about the specialty coffee world. Buyers are only interested in getting the best quality for the lowest price. But what about the fact Murray's workers could send their kids to school? What about the fact his farm was so ecological? Surely that's worth something in the specialty coffee world? Murray is clearly seeing roasters are not putting money where their mouths are. For these roasters, their number one priority is a good tasting coffee at the lowest price. If there's something good to say about ecology and farm workers, then they'll include it as a bonus. But if there's nothing good to say, they'll say nothing. And all the while, they would come to visit him on the farm. You know, there's a lot of people that come to visit you. I'm like this famous farm now, do you know? And I had from, I mean, the whole globe, unbelievable. They would take photographs, then splash them across Instagram and talk about how much they have the farmer's interests at heart. And um, they all promise all kinds of stuff and then nothing seems to materialize. And all the while, Murray is going broke. 
This is not the end of the story. If you want to hear the rest, and trust me, you do, uh, you can find Filter Stories on all of the fab podcast aggregators as well as James's website, filterstories.org. That's it for today. Thank you so, so much for listening to American Student Radio and for interrogating your taste buds. We'll be taking a break next week, but we will return soon with another warm audio embrace. See you then. American Student Radio is a student-run audio storytelling group at Indiana University in Bloomington. We broadcast new shows every Sunday at noon on 99.1 WIUX and on our podcast. Find us wherever your ears listen to podcasts. Our theme music comes from Lunamatic. Special thanks to our advisor, Amy Gastelum. You can follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice or find us on Facebook and Instagram. We'll be back with more stories next week.